Welcome to Yellow and Brown Tales, Asian American Folklife Today, a podcast where we give voice to the expressive culture of Asian American life, such as tradition, identity, food, and more. I'm Dr. Nancy Ann, and I'm here with three fellow Asian American folklorists, and today we'll be talking about what Asian American folklore is and what exactly is it that we study. Each person can go ahead and introduce themselves. Faria, would you like to start? My name is Faria Khan, and I'm the Associate Director of Asian American Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Margaret? Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm Margaret Magad, and I'm a Cultural Resource Program Manager and Folklorist. Okay, Juan? I'm Juan Zhang. I teach uh, Chinese uh, language and culture uh, at when I'm at university in, in Oregon. Okay, well, thank you everybody for coming today and joining us on this podcast. Before we talk about Asian American folklore, perhaps we can first explain what we mean by folklore and folk life, as many people are not familiar with this field of study. My sense is that many people, when people say folklore, they often think of Paul Bunyan stories or things that are not true. But the study of folklore is much more um, is much more than that. Can we start with you, Joanne? Well, to me, uh, you know, from folklorist point of view, uh, you know, there are many definitions. But from my personal uh, view, I think folklore is easy to understand because that's part of our everyday life. Uh, what we eat, what we drink, how do we talk, how do we act, and with whom we make friends or get married and so on. Uh, so to me, folklore is really our everyday life. That And that is essential to who we are, the identity. So that's my understanding of folklore. Okay, um, Margaret, what what's your what's uh, what's your understanding of what folklore is? Folklore, I think, would be understood by talking first about what is a folk group, and learning this from Alan Dundee's at UC Berkeley, my mentor. He said it's two or more people with one common factor. So you could be a member of a church group, a member of um, the same uh, heritage, a member of a work group, and whatever commonalities that you have in terms of belief and practices and um, anything else like uh, narratives that you share, that would be your folklore. Right. So for me, it it all boils down to what you share in commonality with one or more person. Freya, do you want to add to that? You know, I I would agree with both um, Juwen and Margaret. I think that folklore is deeply embedded within the everyday. The other piece that I would add is that it is a way that both individuals and communities share their particular identities and customs and practices. And as folklorists, we really try to understand that experience from their world perspective, not from our own, right? So we're really attempting to not only deeply engage some of these practices and to come to a better understanding. But also in many ways, I think that folklorists try to uplift the stories of those that may not 
be heard or be seen. Mm. Yeah, I would, I mean, I think you have all given really great definitions of folklore. When I first came to folklore, um, I understood it as what people believe the everyday. So actually, I come from an organizing background. And when I heard about folklore, it really pricked up my ears because I thought it was a study of lay culture, vernacular. And that's what really attracted to me, attracted me to the field, because as an organizer, I was very invested in the community, understanding how a community operates. What do people do? What do people believe? So um, that is that that was my introduction and um, my attraction to folklore. For the rest of you, what what was it that you loved about folklore? What attracted you to the field, Margaret? Well, there's a lot in folklore that attracted me because it's if we were to just talk about it, uh, as you mentioned, we talked about the word community, um, practice, and the, another key term is tradition. And all of that is, you know, are terms that I grew up seeing the actual processes of how people do these things and perform them in their everyday life. And I didn't have a category for it, and it was just something that I accepted. But when I, when I grew up, I always wanted to know what was the meaning of things. Why do people do what they do? So I think what I love about folklore is that all these mysteries of why people do what they what they do um, can be illuminated by looking at the actual performative act and and the processes, the people, the context, and as a whole, as a holistic um, a whole, you see and understand more of yourself as well as the particular. Uh, folklore um, process or communication that you're trying to to understand in the first place. I just was thinking that that's really interesting, Margaret. And I was thinking about my own experience of coming to folklore, which was not planned and somewhat haphazard. You know, I was in a graduate program where I was studying text. I was, you know, doing a master's in Arabic and Islamic studies, and you know, it was very philological and um, I had this desperate yearning to connect with people and to really incorporate their voice in my, in my research. And so I felt that I couldn't really continue that particular graduate program and so ended up at Penn. And I don't think I really knew what folklore was, but I knew that it was answering this desire for me to be out in in the world of people and really thinking and working with them and asking them questions and learning from them. I think that's what drew me to the field in the first place. Um, and as I learned more, I think I decided that this was really where I wanted to be. And this was the kind of research that I wanted to do that was most meaningful to me. Joanne, was that the same for you? Like this desire to really learn more and understand people? Well, yes, but we, I have to say I have a different uh, uh, aspect. Uh, for me, personally, uh, it was the uh, myths, stories uh, that I uh, first encountered outside China. Uh, in other words, when I learned, began to learn English, I find that 
you know, similarities among, uh, you know, different cultures, on same uh, stories, same events. Uh, so that attracted me to so-called folklore. And later, given the fact that I grew up in a different culture, being Chinese, um, I realized that the very concept of folklore in English uh, was different from the Chinese concept. Uh, you know, people translate the folklore as a min su, which uh, doesn't really have the uh, particular uh, 19th century European uh, connotation of the folk. So uh, later I realized that the folklore was not just about the facts, you know, not just stories. And people use folklore actually refers to the studies of folklore. So then I realized there was another term, folkloristics, uh, that differentiate the, the facts, the, the everyday life we uh, live with, and the studies uh, as a disciplinary uh, uh, studies. Um, so later I, I find that, as I said, uh, it, it's really the way we live everyday life that uh, defines who we are as a person or as a group. Uh, and that uh, fascinated me, uh, how we unconsciously using folklore uh, to define who we are. Uh, so that's uh, something I find what, you know, you, you can't get that from other disciplines. So I became a folklorist. <laughs> and Margaret, what was your origin story? What did you love about folklore and what attracted you to the field? Well, I, as I mentioned I earlier in my reply, I grew up with all these things around me. I'm a first-generation Filipina immigrant, and I came to the U.S. Uh, from via Canada, via the Pacific island of Tonga, um, and arrived in L.A., by the time I was 14 or 15. And there was all these things that I had taken for granted as that everybody would, that everybody knew that I only found out was just my particular family or my particular culture that was doing those kinds of things. And my origin story came about because after, after my BA, I was looking through a catalog because I knew I really wanted to get into a graduate program, but I wanted to study something that had to do with culture and writing. Those those were my two things that I knew. I didn't know nothing about this field called folklore. And I saw a, a address that said University of California, Berkeley, and a, a man named Alan Dundies. And it suggested in this catalog that you call every single place that you're interested in and ask all these specific questions about what do you know about the field or are you published in the field? Uh, are you known in your field? So whatever guidelines, whatever guidebook I followed, I, I, follow, I pretty much did this. And my very first call was Alan Dundee's, which um, to folklorists and those outside the field know he's one of the biggest giants of the field. Um, and he answered the phone and I asked him in my you know, naive way is, uh, have you published anything? Uh, well, I don't know. He said, I must've been over <laughs> 95 things, 95 or a hundred. 
And I thought to myself, this guy, he must be pulling my leg, right? So he said, uh, I go, how about books? You know, what about books? Those are articles. And he said, I don't know, edited, written, I don't know. It's maybe uh, 50 or more. So I really didn't know if I should believe it or not. But I afterwards, I looked him up in the library catalog. I went to the library and typed his name. And I was astonished at all these books that he had written, all the articles. And I started reading it. And I was drawn to the fact that this field put a name to something that I'd wanted to study since I was a little girl. So ever since then, when he ever, whenever the topic came up, he enjoyed telling people what a greenhorn I was the first time I called him and, uh, and how proud of he, how proud he was that I went on to study uh, under uh, his guidance at UC Berkeley. That's a really nice story about Alan Dundas. Um, you know, I, I understand, I've never met him, but I understand that he was very much an excellent mentor to so many people, brought a lot of people into the field. Yes, he was. Margaret had a, a wonderful story about Alan Dundas. Uh, that reminded me of uh, my personal, uh, part of my uh, uh, journey to, to folklore. Uh, so when I was in college, uh, it was back in 1983, um, I somehow uh, translated an article uh, which titled The Concept of Motif in Folklore. It was written by uh, Dan Ben Amos, who have later became uh, the mentor for three of us, Faria and uh, Margaret and me. Uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, so my my first you know uh, encounter with uh, Dan Ben Amos uh, was through that article. But later, I also translated his other uh, pieces, including one particular uh, article uh, which defines folklore as the um, uh, uh, the artistic communication in small groups which is a, a, a definition used for maybe five decades, but still uh, is in um, debate because now we are in the digital age and whether small group is, is the small group he meant 50, 60 years ago. Uh, but anyway, I think uh, both Alan Dundee's, uh, Damien Amos, uh, or there are, of course, there are many more. Uh, they really uh, influenced us uh, in terms of our understanding of, of folkloristics. So, Joanne, I know that you've done a lot of um, work with Chinese folklore and you have done a lot of translations. Um, and then I think that you started to move into more Asian American folklore. So when we're talking about Asian American folklore, what are some of the types of things that one might study um, what are some things that you've studied, and how is it a folklore approach? And I think you've um, you've written some uh, you've written an article about Asian American folklore. In terms of Asian American folklore, uh, you know, this is uh, something I um, began to think seriously maybe about ten years ago or a little more than that, because when I first came uh, to the University of Pennsylvania more than 20, uh, about 25 years ago, um, I 
was mostly interested in you know the Chinese tradition. Uh, and then uh, my dissertation was on Chinese uh, American or Chinese community uh, funeral in Philadelphia. And gradually that uh, uh, brought me to the concept of Asian American. So who Asian Americans uh, are or what their folklore uh, is. Um, so to make it short, um, I, with that idea, I began to you know, offer courses uh, and write about uh, uh, what American folklore, uh, Asian American folklore is. And eventually actually, uh, Faria, Margaret, and, and there's another person, four of us uh, put together a special issue in the Journal of American Folklore to uh, kind of to define what uh, fo Asian American folklore is and uh, who Asian Americans uh, are. Um, in that regard, I, my personal understanding is we want to emphasize the shared experience uh, through migration, through cultural uh, integration, uh, and together building a, um, you know, uh, a body of knowledge, a body of experience uh, that is no longer separable separable uh, from being American. When I was interested in studying Asian American folklore, I was, uh, you know, thinking of what, yeah, how how did Asian American culture develop um, in the U in the U.S. context? How did how did um, how did their own culture develop separate from, you know, outside of heritage countries? Um, I was uh, when I started grad school. Um, Asian American culture was still uh, was still very much invisible, even more invisible than it is today. And I was interested in how Asian Americans um, develop their own popular practices, um, how they uh, you know how they kind of uh, created their own culture. Um, you know that was an amalgamation of several different influences. Um, so I was also interested not only politically but also culturally, like things that were you know, uh, inside jokes or um, foodways, um, things like that. That was what was um, interesting to me. And that's what I thought of as um, Asian American folklore. Um, Freya, do you want to speak to a little bit more about um, uh, Asian American folklore? What does that look like? So, you know, for me, I think what interested me in my own work um, was really questions around ethnicity and identity and ways that individuals and communities find expression for identity and for ethnicity. So, you know, I teach a course on South Asians in the U.S. I also teach another course on Muslim identity. Um, I've taught a course on Asian American food. Ultimately, all of these courses really revolve around shared community expressions of identity, right? And the folkloric ways that people do so or choose not to do so, right? What they share and what they don't share. I think that what is so, is so interesting about Asian American folklore, one is that if we look back at the history of Asian Americans, the Asian American body was never really fully incorporated into the landscape of the US. So when we think about Asian American folklore, it's this 
incredibly intimate way of looking at how a particular community, a group of people, um, a religious group, a community organization, the ways in which they have, you know, become part of the U.S. landscape, right? And so this is fascinating to me, the, the choices that people have made, maybe the agency that they didn't have, um, as well as ways that they were not allowed to become part of the U.S. framework, right? So both of those things, I think, I think, I, I deeply think about, particularly now when I'm teaching this course on Asian American communities and really exploring the vast um, diversity in the Asian American experience, um, who has the agency to continue a practice, who has the accessibility to language or to food products or spices, right? All of these things really impact the ways in which communities will then showcase who they are. That's so rich. I am just really in, enjoying this conversation and um, I, I, I want to answer it, but I have to make sure that Juen, you have to put these things in context because uh, Juen has written about the exclusion laws and how that has pros- you know, influenced uh, the, pro- the processes and the ability of folk groups to be able to perform their own folklore here. Um, but hopefully, after my answer, Juen can step in. But I want to respond to the to this idea of agency that Fariha um, beautifully put out there. And I want to reply uh, through the lens of food, because food has been one of my uh, topics of it that I love to talk about. And um, specifically, uh, just looking at Filipino-American immigration to the U.S., when they first arrived, the early Filipinos back in the 1900s to 1920s, they worked as laborers in the fields of California and Hawaii, um, planting sugarcane, pulling up other crops, and they didn't have the agency to be able to make their own food unless they were in an area or a place where they were able to sit or sleep in one specific uh, housing where they could cook their food, right? So there were these cafes that sprung up in uh, little Manila towns like in Stockton where they would have the ability to taste their food. But if they didn't have those um, cafes in the areas where they could cook, uh, it was very hard to find the ingredients. So um, Filipino-American historian Don Mabalon was a fantastic um, scholar and writer who discussed how Filipino immigrants would uh, fish in the in the Delta rivers in Sacramento Valley, illegally getting the salmon heads, p- 
picking out whatever weeds they could get and making their version of sinigang, which is this, this sour soup. That was their agency that they could, in that constricted environment, right? And in Alaska, you have all these um, Filipino uh, cannery workers and also um, those that work in the ships. They, they used whatever meats that they could have. If they got tired of the salmon heads there, they would, you know, I heard and I've read that they use seal meat to make adobo. Right? What are the things that are happening in that environment and how is being in that particular context influencing the changes in the foods that they eat? So I think it's really important to understand Asian American folklore and not enough people are doing it because uh, we need to know what is happening when you take these things from the homeland, mix it in with uh, what's happening with the different groups that you encounter in the U.S. And of course, the overall popular mainstream type of customs and practices and then the political laws and situation that you have to deal with. So all of that stuff makes up Asian American folklore. I, I think uh, uh, Faria and Margaret, uh, uh, you know, uh, touched upon some uh, essential things, whether in terms of the concepts of being diaspora identity or a specific food or soup. Uh, and as Margaret just mentioned, uh, in terms of the uh, studies of uh, Asian American folklore, uh, we have, uh, I think it's very underdeveloped. Uh, for example, um, we, as we put together the special issue of about five years ago in the Journal of American Folklore, uh, we realized that over the hundred years also, uh, in terms of the uh, establishment of American Folklore Society, uh, there had been no uh, special issue on the topic of Asian American folklore. So there wasn't such a concept. Uh, well, it was understandable in a way, a hundred years ago, the population of Asian American was very small. But today we know that it's almost 6% of American population. Uh, this is uh, something we can't ignore. And, and then back to everyday life, who can uh, live a day or two without being you know, part of the Asian American cu culture? In that regard, we want to emphasize that Asian. On the one hand, we talk about Asian American folklore, but on the other hand, we want to break the boundary uh, to separate us from others, because uh, we know that in the you know uh, from 1950s, 60s on, uh, there was an idea for studying ethnic folklore or is specifically Asian American being the model minority uh, mentioned in this ethnic studies uh, process. But the point is, I think later we realize the more we emphasize uh, a particular uh, ethnic group, uh, we may fall into this uh, dangerous trap that is we isolate ourselves uh, and then eventually we reinforce uh, the uh, stereotype. So with that understanding, we began to move uh, out of this trap by emphasizing the shared 
experience, not only among Asian Americans, but also by all the other uh, uh, minorities or migrants uh, or anyone eventually. So in this sense, I think we realize the the study of Asian American folklore is not to uh, isolate ourselves, but to understand that this is a new culture whether from Chinese uh, culture or Japanese or Philippines, uh, w- w- once we have this Asian American component in this country, we are building a new culture. This is not one plus one equals two issue, but rather it's really a new culture that integrates uh, many, many, uh, all, all the cultures available <laughs> in the world. Uh, in that sense, uh, the study of uh, Asian American folklore is really to uh, let people know that uh, studying any uh, uh, cultural group or folk group is in fact to understand us, uh, who, who are we. Uh, who, 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 in other words, we can't separate, we can't sep- separate ourselves from others and other is part of us. What we feel uh, exotic, uh, unfamiliar actually is part of us as well. So uh, I think that, that that's the essence for me, uh, the, the, the good part of a, a folklore studies. Chuan, you know, if I can jump in, I would say I agree with you 100%. I think that there is a need for our work, right, as Asian American folklorists to really emphasize that the study of Asian American folklore is the study of American folklore. And also, I feel like we really need to emphasize the fact that at this moment, there feels to me to be an almost urgency to really develop, broaden, and share this work um, with the rise of anti-Asian violence that's happening now in 2021 and has been an ongoing battle since the beginning of the pandemic, you know, a year ago, and even actually before then, since Asians were first in the country. But it's a moment where we really need to emphasize the critical nature of this work, that the shared journey is one that we all have in the U.S. and highlight that piece. I just want to raise the question to this. Should we even call it Asian American? Yes. Uh, Margaret, I was just wondering, was there an alternate um, uh, title that you wanted, you were thinking about or alternate name? Uh, Not at this moment, but I do want to discuss in the future about uh, what we have previously raised in the past and that journal issue of this kinds of what you can put it in, what terms you can call it. It's not third culture. It's not, it, it's, uh, it's, Juan, did you want to, it's a folk identity, folkloric identity, which is the term that I think is very useful here because we're moving away from pegging folklore into certain groups that that's the only thing that this so-and-so does and they don't, those other people, they don't do it. What are they doing, and why are they doing it, and can and, and what is uh, illuminating about that performative act to to their identities? And that is where Juwen comes in with his term folkloric identity, which he expands from 
from Alan Dendy's. Do you, you want to talk about? Thanks, Margaret. Um, well, in terms of the idea of a folkloric identity, um, I think uh, uh, this moves beyond the previous concept of a, a ethnic or racial identity, because I realize, uh, you know, from the previous studies, the more we emphasize so-called Asian American folklore or uh, Chinese American folklore, the more we reinforce the existing uh, stereotypes uh, by uh, using the concept of ethnicity, you know, which was borrowed from uh, you know others, uh, not from folkloristic sense. That that we we as I said we we fell into this trap. Uh, the more we emphasize your being Chinese American. Uh, the more we said, you can't be away from this. You have to be so. So, for example, years ago, I encountered a couple who adopted uh, two Chinese uh, kids. And, uh, you know, this is a big social phenomenon. And they want, to, they want the kids to be Chinese uh, because they said they should remember they are Chinese. Uh, they have to learn language, dress Chinese way, eat Chinese food, take them to Chinatown regularly. But I want to make the point that they are here. They are maybe culturally or biologically, or I, I wouldn't use biologic. That's just fallacy. Uh, the, the, they are here being American. They should compete or be with American uh, as anyone else, why you reinforce their uh, Chineseness by doing that? You don't give them choice to be uh, other parts of America. So, as Faria said, we we are actually, uh, although we are talking about Asian American folklore, actually we are talking about who we are as American in general, whether it's you know yellow, brown, black, whatever color. I think that's what we want to move on uh, because. It, it, we constantly fall into this trap is about name uh, Asian American. Then you are Asian, by all means. You are African, by all means. You are Chinese, by all means. You can't be away from that, uh, and we don't have a good term for that yet. Uh, that's why I think uh, we should emphasize everyday life. What makes us uh, as a as American? Uh, what brought the people of different color to be couples to be met, to, to have children? to adopt the kids and so on and so forth. Uh, this is not based on so-called race. This is not based on any particular blood or something. It's, it's everyday life, it's a shared identity, shared experience. I think that you're really right in that it is a shared identity. It's definitely an American identity. But I think that there's also something to the idea that um, Asian Americans are not allowed to simply identify as American, right? And that's part of the exotification um, process that many Asian Americans have to endure, that they always get the question of where are you really from, not believing that they are American, they are from America, their families have been American in, um, for, in, in America for generations. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why um, I think it's important to understand Asian American folklore is to understand how this has developed and to stake a place in the United States as American, for sure. Um, but it may be that, uh, you know, that America is not at that point yet where we can simply um, say that, you know, 
to say to say that somebody is American um, without kind of uh, without kind of um, um, including um, all these other factors and um, characters characteristics that they might impose um, on somebody by the way that they, that they look. Well, I think you said it uh, uh, very well. That is, uh, our purpose here is not to draw the boundary to isolate ourselves from others, but rather to, to let people know that knowing uh, more about Asian American folklore or any other groups uh, is, in fact, to understand us as Americans, uh, whether right. you know, first, second, third yeah. generation. Um, yeah. So I think that's exactly what we try to do here. Especially during uh, the during this time, as Freya said, you know, during this uh, time of heightened racism against Asians, I think um, part of it is not understanding that um, Asian Americans are part of the American fabric, um, part of American society. Absolutely. Exactly. Agreed. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation, and I know that we have much more to talk about for future podcasts. But for now, I'd like to thank everybody for sharing their perspectives and insights on Asian American folklore and folklife. This has been Yellow and Brown Tales, Asian American Folklife Today with Nancy Yan, Freya Khan, Margaret McGaugh, and Juen Zhang. Thanks, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Yellow and Brown Tales, Asian American Folklife Today is a podcast that is supported by the Asian American Studies Program at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania.